Good morning, Cornerstone Church. I know you all are surprised to see me standing up here because we were supposed to have a guest speaker with us today. Marshall Mullinex and Babs, his lovely wife, were coming at our invitation to speak to us on the subject of missions. This was Mission Sunday. Unfortunately, you're stuck with me. And so I will do my best to make this as understandable for you as I can. By asking first the question, what is missions? What is missions? Britannica defines missions as an organized effort for the preaching of the gospel. Simple enough. Organized effort for the preaching of the gospel. And in our Western evangelical vernacular, a missionary is one who lives in a country other than one's own as a representative of the Christian faith, preaching the gospel to the lost, often in a foreign language. That's a mouthful, but that's what missionaries tend to be. But there's another def definition from uh, John Piper. John Piper says this, that missions is a cross-cultural effort to transform people's hearts through the preaching of the gospel. I like that one better because it's more broad. Doesn't have much to do with geography or with language. But missions is a cross-cultural effort to transform people's hearts through the preaching of the gospel. So that missions is a sub-kettle baby. Look at the little baby on the floor. <laughs> call, me, call me by surprise there. Uh, so, so missions is a subcategory of evangelism. Missions is evangelism, a subcategory of evangelism. The preaching of the gospel to the lost, that's evangelism. And of course, the revolutionary text in support of this idea, this Christian idea of missions comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus says to his disciples, all authority, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And this is how we conclude, by the way, that, that missions is done in a foreign country, of all nations. But this term of all nations could also or just as easily be interpreted as to all nationalities. So that Jesus would also be saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nationalities, whether in a foreign country or your home country, doesn't really matter. Jesus continues, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. That's the great commission that we all know. That's the missionary's hallmark text in support of missions work. To go, to make disciples, to baptize and to teach and to do all these things under the power and under the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that once the missionary has identified the people group that God is calling them to, then in God's timing they are to go to that people group. And over time, by God's grace, the elect are converted and the elect are baptized. This is when the teaching should begin in earnest. But right at this point, I want to make an objective or maybe a subjective observation. 
based only on my own personal experiences with missionaries, so it may not be a universal fact, but this is my personal observation. That the missionaries I've been blessed to encounter are most often excited about the going. Everybody wants to go. I'm going to China, I'm gonna live in this city, I'm going to live in a little tent, I'm gonna live in a hut, we're gonna serve the people in our area. I wanna go, I'm ready to go. Most are very excited about converting and about baptizing. I'm gonna save souls for the kingdom. I'm gonna build up the numbers. I want to go, I want to convert. I want to baptize the lost. But most missionaries that I know don't talk very much about that teaching component of missionary work. Go, baptize, teach. Most missionaries I know are not excited about teaching. So for them, missions is primarily about going and converting. That's what all of us think about when we think of missions, is going and converting the lost. Not very often do we talk about teaching. Which begs the question, is a missionary ever sent to a foreign land with the objective only to teach? My missionaries can answer that for me. Is a missionary ever sent to a country with the objective only to teach? Not to convert, not to baptize, but just to teach. Is that ever possible? Ask the question another way. To the missionary mind, is evangelism more important than teaching? Is one more important than the other? What is the answer to that question? I know that evangelism always precedes teaching. You must be converted before you can understand the full gospel, the full doctrines. But, but, but is teaching secondary in importance to evangelism? I know a lot of missionaries who tend to think so. And this flawed understanding can cause spiritual and doctrinal problems down the road. I'll tell you about a guy, his name is Billy Sunday. <laughs> Billy Sunday was one of the greatest missionary evangelists of the 19th and the early 20th centuries. He preached the gospel all over America, he preached the gospel around the world, converted many people to Christ. One summer he was in New York City preaching the gospel and he gave the call and a young man came forward and gave his life to Jesus Christ. But because there was no teaching component to the evangelism, because there was no teaching component to the missionary endeavor, this young man was left to his own devices with a Bible and a pen. And he created one of the largest Christian cults in America because there was no teaching. There was conversion, there was baptism, but there was no teaching. Teaching is a part of the Great Commission. You can't just save them and let them go. Someone has to ground them in truth. <laughs> teaching is a major component of missions. Which brings me to Nehemiah. And this brings me to my slant on teaching-focused missions. And this is my slant because of the way God made me. My slant on teaching-focused missions. 
And according to my understanding of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus Christ has not called us to evangelism only, nor has Jesus Christ called us to teaching only. But what have we been called to? We have been called to the work of discipleship. That is the great commission. Go and read it. That's the great commission. Go and make disciples. How do you do that? You do that by preaching the gospel. You do that by baptizing. You do that by teaching. But the great commission is discipleship. That is the commission. Discipleship consists of engaging and converting the lost. That's the going. That's the baptizing. That's the preaching. But the final and the lifelong aspect of discipleship is to teach the saved. Let me say it again. The final and the lifelong aspect of discipleship is to teach the saved. Teaching the saved is a part of missions and the longest part of missions. For this reason, I do not view all missions as an effort to convert the lost. When I think of missions, I'm not thinking about people of another language who are half-dressed, half-clad, who can barely speak a good language and I have to go and explain to them the ABC. That's not how I think of missions. I understand missions to also encompass the teaching and the training of those who have been saved. This is where I place my emphasis because this is the mission I believe both I and I believe this church has been called to. I sincerely believe that God is calling for missions-driven churches whose focus is not primarily on the lost. But mostly upon reconciling and reforming those who have already been found. I believe there is a desperate need for this kind of missionary work nowadays. A mission to the churches. A mission to the body of Christ. You say that and people will get perplexed. A mission to the church? We don't need missionaries to come. I believe that we need missionaries to come to the church. Churches whose mission and focus is to connect with other less equipped churches, to assist in running day camps and summer programs. Churches that come alongside other churches to conduct special teaching series, to provide administrative support, to provide pulpit supply. Mission-centered churches, building up other churches and building up the body of Jesus Christ. That is also missions. A church that is servant to other churches, a church that is servant to the body politic. To teach and to reteach them all that Christ has commanded and to do so by precept and by example. That is my personal mission. But I believe that if a group of believers banded together under this mission, it could shore up what seems to be lacking in our fulfillment of the Great Commission because something is lacking in this faith. I know you can feel it. I know you can see it that something is lacking in the faith. The Barner Group keeps telling us over and over again how biblically illiterate the majority of Christians in America are. 
pollings keep confirming it over and over again how theologically illiterate many Christians in the body of Christ are. We need to be taught and retaught again. We're steadily running out to get new converts, to bring new people into the body, but they're not being taught. Because teaching is not a great aspect of the Great Commission. Just get them saved. And as soon as they get saved and they've been around the church for six months, send them on mission. That's how we do it. We, we, we want to multiply. We want to get bigger. But unfortunately, we've gotten bigger without getting deeper. <laughs> because we're not getting deeper, we have a lot of immature believers in the body who need to be taught and retaught. That is also missions. Much of the church, many other believers in our churches are spiritually emaciated and anemic. And slowly but steadily, the ideologies of the world are being assimilated into our churches into our church charters, into our church's doctrine, and into the hearts of the people of God. I do not say this lightly, that the church of Jesus Christ is under siege, being laid waste by liberalism, being lured away from the truth by conservatism, being pushed to the back of the line by humanism, being intrigued by a false sense of spiritualism being deceived by the wealth of this world. On all sides, it seems like the church of Jesus Christ is under siege. And I believe, I truly believe, that Jesus Christ is sending out missionaries to teach and to reteach all that he has commanded. Doesn't sound like a missionary sermon. What does my rant then have to do with Nehemiah? Well, Nehemiah is a man who is on a similar mission to the one I've just described. Nehemiah was sent by God not to a lost people, not to a people who didn't know God. Nehemiah was sent to the people of God to rebuild, to re-inspire, to re-instruct and to reform the worship of God among his own people. That was the mission that Nehemiah was sent on, a mission to the people of God. Nehemiah was a missionary reformer then. He has all the classic character traits of any modern missionary today, according to the Dictionary of Pastoral Care and Counseling. There are five general characteristics that are most common among missionaries. Here they are, most missionaries tend to be compassionate, idealistic, adventurous, individualistic, and theolog theologically conservative. Those are the five primary characteristics of most modern day missionaries. Compassion, idealism, adventurism, individualism, and theological conservatism. Nehemiah possessed all of these character traits. He was compassionate. Compassion shows concern for the welfare of others. Look at what he says in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, verses 1 and 2. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, 
while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them about the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity. And I asked them about Jerusalem. Nehemiah was concerned about the welfare of the people of God. That's what was on his mind. They had been through a lot, sacked first by Assyria, then by the Babylonians, now under siege by Persia. He asked about the welfare of the people of God and his concern for them was not just spiritual. His concern for them was holistic. He wanted to know about their spiritual, about their psychological and about their physical state. How are they doing? Not only did he inquire about their physical state, about their personal state, he also wanted to know about the state of the infrastructure of Jerusalem. How is the city? Compassion shows concern. This is what was on the top of his mind. How are the people of God? How is the city of God doing? His brother and his colleagues gave him this dreadful report. They said to him, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and disgrace. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. It's a mess. The people of God are a mess. The place of God are a mess. The temple of God is a mess. How are they doing? It's a mess, Nehemiah. The people are stressed out, self-conscious and insecure. The people are ashamed and dismayed and afraid. Seems like they're just about ready to throw in the towel, Nehemiah. And not only are they feeling insecure, they are in fact insecure. Their walls have been torn down, the walls that once shielded them from the enemy's attack. The walls are demolished, the gates are charred and unusable. The place is a wreck. And upon hearing this report, Nehemiah is filled with compassion. He says in verse four, now, when I heard these words, I sat down. Have you ever been so overwhelmed with sorrow that you had to sit down? He asked them, how are, the, how are the Jews doing that escaped the captivity and how is Jerusalem doing? Well, let me tell you, the walls are torn down. No, no. The people are dismayed and ashamed. Oh my God. And the gates are burned with, oh my God. Mm. Compassion. I sat down. Couldn't believe what I was hearing, I sat down. In order to keep from fainting, I had to sit down. He was so overwhelmed with compassion that his heart almost leaped out of his chest. The weight of their plight weighed heavily on his heart. I sat down, he said, and I wept and I mourned. That's what compassion does. Compassion so deeply feels and relates to the plight of others that it causes a person to experience their situation internally. 
Nehemiah is right here sharing in their grief. Even though he is 1,000 miles away, he is going through what they are experiencing in that moment. As Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 6, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. He's suffering with the people of God from a distance. Compassion suffers with. And when we look around and see or we hear of the state of the church, of the state of our faith in our nation and around the world, we should suffer with. Received an email this week regarding a very popular pastor of some, a lot of churches around the world who's fallen from grace or fallen from his position. Turns out he had all kinds of skeletons in his closet like so many others. When we see the situation of our church in America and around the world, we should suffer with. We should internalize the trauma within the body and be ready to mobilize, to meet the needs of the church. We should suffer with. But sometimes all we do is weep and mourn. We feel temporary sorrow for those believers struggling under oppressive leadership. We feel temporary sorrow for those believers who are laboring under false doctrine, subjugated to the egotistical whims of false prophets and false teachers. We feel sorry for a moment, then we get up and we go on our way. We weep and we mourn for a day, then we go back to doing whatever we were doing. But Nehemiah didn't weep just for a day. And compassion doesn't weep just for a day. The text says he wept and he mourned for days. His bed was a river of tears. Possibly for weeks, maybe even for months. That, that's how you know if you're called to missions to some specific people group. That's how you can tell if you're called to a, a specific people. If you weep for them, if you share with in their grief, your heart never rests from wondering and crying over their plight. And in your compassion, you weep for days. And you weep and you weep until the point that your tears, your crying, your mourning becomes a movement. Your crying becomes a campaign for their immediate relief and their immediate release. Look at what he says. Not only did Nehemiah weep and mourn, he says he also was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He's called to these people. He's sharing in their grief, he's sharing in their pain, and now his sorrow has become a movement before God. I am turning my plate over. I refuse to eat until you set them free. <laughs> His mourning became a movement. Yeah, man. That's how you know when you're called to people. When your compassion is more than just words. I had a brother told me, I believe God is calling me to Hawaii. I said, congratulations. Everybody wants to be called to Hawaii. Yeah, God has called me to Hawaii. They got beautiful palm trees there, and the beaches are so... He's not calling you on vacation. I thought he's calling you to, to mission. Who over in Hawaii are you weeping and mourning about? 
Who has you so, so desperately compassionate that you are fasting and praying about? Who are the people that God is saying? He's not just sending you to a place so that you can say, I've been to Asia. I lived in Asia. for. What did you do when you were in Asia? What people group did he specifically send you to? You get those letters from the missionaries. I'm not knocking missionaries. You get those letters from the missionaries and they tell you what school their children are going to. And they tell you they had a cold last week. And, and my son broke his ankle while he was playing soccer. And I'm reading the missionary report and thinking, you, you went on mission to go to school and to, what are you doing over there? What is the goal? Who are the people? How are you affecting the kingdom of God? Missionaries not just on vacation. They teach many missionaries nowadays that you're doing missions if you go and just live with the people group. If you never preach the gospel, if you just go and live with the people group, you're doing missions. Well, every time I move, then I'm doing missions. If you move tomorrow and move to a new house, you're doing missions, I guess. No, no, no. Missions is preaching the gospel. God is sending you to a specific people. Nehemiah turned his plate down in protest. It is said that Moody, D.L. Moody did something very similar. He said to God, give me this city or I will die. So compassionate was he for the people. That's how you know when you're called to a people. When you become so desperate for them that you're willing to sacrifice even your daily food on their behalf. He wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed. He was serious about them. This wasn't a vacation. He was refusing to eat and to drink, preferring in this way to stand in solidarity with the people of God rather than enjoy the plus life that he had been given in the king's palace. Compassion is serious. It's more than just a feeling. Compassion is a movement. Compassion is a determination. Compassion is a strong and overpowering emotion and desire that takes you to extremes for the people that you love. Of course, the primary example of compassion is Jesus Christ himself, who out of compassion for us endured the cross, thinking nothing of the shame. Compassion led Jesus Christ to the ultimate extreme. That if the only way my people can be saved is for me to go to the cross, then let the cross rest on my shoulders and I will personally carry my cross to the place of my demise. That is radical compassion. Will Smith got his trophy. Came to the microphone and said, love make you do some crazy things. Love is not crazy. Love does not seek its own benefit. Love is not provoked. Love does not keep an account of a wrong suffered. To the world, you read that text, and to the world, that sounds crazy. Crazy love is just the opposite of what Will exhibited. Crazy love would have taken the insult. Crazy love would have secured his wife emotionally. Crazy love would have forgiven that man on the spot. That's what crazy love looks like. 
Nehemiah's compassion did not lead him into the king's bedchamber to seek vengeance for the plight of his people. Think about that. How are the people, how are the Jews doing it and, and how is Jerusalem doing? The walls are, are, are torn down, the, 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 the gates are burned with fire, the people are dismayed and discouraged. And guess what? The guy who you're serving, he's the one that did it. Think about that. The king of Persia, he's the one who oppressed your people. He's the one who burned down their gates. He's the one who tore down their walls. You ever think about that? Nehemiah was serving the guy that was harming his own people. That's very interesting to think about. It's kind of like the, the Christian church in America who approved of slavery in Africa. And now they send missionaries to Africa and it's like, that's so cute. You helped to oppress the people and to burn down their cities and now you want to send people back to heal them. Okay, but God has a way. He didn't go into the bedchamber and say, King, my people are suffering because of what you did. I'm going to take out vengeance on you. No, no, his compassion caused him instead to choose to suffer with the righteous through self-inflicted hunger, through self-inflicted self-denial of himself. He fasted and he prayed. Before he made a plan, he fasted and he prayed. And in his prayer, you can hear his idealism. The missionary is idealistic. He calls God great and awesome. He says that God keeps the covenant and faithfulness for those who love him and keep his commandments. For Nehemiah, God is the epitome of perfection. He is the concept and the standard of all that is good. Nehemiah is an idealist. Then he confesses that the people of God have not lived up to the standard. So Nehemiah stands in the gap for them, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have committed against you. Notice that. He doesn't say which they have committed. He, 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 he numbers himself among the people of God. It's not just their problem. It's not just their fault. I stand in solidarity with them. We have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments. We have not kept your statutes nor your ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. We have sinned. He confesses the truth. We have not lived up to the ideal. We have not arrived at God's grand conception of what his people have been called to be or to become. It pains him to say it, but he knows that God already knows. We have not lived up to the ideal. Nehemiah is an idealist. He desires nothing more than to be perfect as God is perfect. Often when we think about idealism, most of the time we think of a person having unrealistic and unachievable goals and standards. But Nehemiah's idealism is not unrealistic. God is in fact just as great and even greater than Nehemiah can understand. And God's people at that very moment in time are just as sinful as Nehemiah has imagined them to be. But by God's grace, they can be redeemed. God's expectation of his people is not unrealistic. My expectations of myself and my walk with Christ is not just wishful thinking. 
Paul says that God's commandments are not grievous. They are not troublesome. That God's commands can in fact be achieved. Whether my personal life and my personal experience bears out that truth or not, it doesn't matter. If it were not possible for me to be holy as God is holy, Jesus would never have commanded me to be so. It is possible, that's not, that's not some unrealistic dream. Nehemiah is fervently idealistic, but he's not imagining things. His perception of what is good and what is perfect is spot on. Nehemiah is also individualistic. And you can tell as you study the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah was a loner, one who preferred to work alone, one who preferred to be alone. He asked God to grant him compassion before the king so that he can go and set God's place in order. He's going to do it himself. He didn't ask for a team. He didn't ask for a crew. He was going on this mission all alone, individualistic. And then even after he got there, even after he got to Jerusalem, after all of his traveling, after he finally made it to Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 11 says, Nehemiah says, I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. I got up in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal, he didn't even take any animals. There was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. And I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon spring and onto the dung gate. And I was inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which had been consumed by fire. He went out all by himself, didn't tell anybody anything individualistic. Then in verse 16 he informs us that the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. Nor had I as yet told the Jews. I didn't tell the priests. I didn't tell the nobles or the officials or the rest who were doing the work. I didn't tell anybody anything about the mission that God had sent me on, individualistic. Working all alone. And that sounds individualistic to the extreme. Nobody knew why Nehemiah had even come to Jerusalem. Nobody knew what Nehemiah even intended to do. <laughs> He was what we preachers despise. Preachers say this all the time. God doesn't have any lone rangers. You've heard that, right? God doesn't have any lone rangers. That's actually not true. I happen to know from my own personal experiences that sometimes a lone ranger is exactly what is needed in order to accomplish God's purposes with stealth and with wisdom. Sometimes God calls you to walk alone. Not every work requires a team. That's just the fact. And the truth is that sometimes teams get so bogged down in religious bureaucracy that they get nothing accomplished. Sometimes you have to do the work all alone. I know that sounds counterintuitive, almost even sounds unbiblical, but there are too many examples in scripture to prove it. Not every missionary has that, that character trait of individualism though. In fact, some missionaries would prefer to work in a team. Paul, Paul wanted to work in a team, remember? Paul got with Barnabas and they were making a team, they were working together, doing apostolic work. Then they pulled Luke in and got Luke going and they were working as a team. Paul didn't want to be by himself. But God called Paul the apostle to an individual work. 
And he and Barnabas had a falling out. He was trying to work with the team, but he couldn't cooperate. It was, doesn't mean he was bad, doesn't mean he, that doesn't mean Barnabas was bad, doesn't mean Luke was bad, it just meant that the work he was called to do, he had to do it by himself. And so he had to say bye-bye to Barnabas and to, and to Luke. He left the team. Individualistic, he was a missionary on a movement. He wasn't called to do it with an entire team, that, that can happen. God called Paul the apostle to individual work and he had to acclimate himself for a season to working all alone. Sometimes your unique individual calling causes you to need to separate from people who may not be able to conceive the vision that God has given you. That happens. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes God will call you to a work where you have to separate from people that you've been working with for a long time because they cannot see the vision that God has given. And you have to walk alone. Nehemiah was individualistic. And then finally, Nehemiah was theologically conservative. I've been reading the book of Nehemiah now for over a month. I wasn't intending to share this. I was praying as to whether God wanted me to... Uh, take us into Nehemiah as our next book. And so I've been reading it all the time and I'm just tickled to death by his theological conservatism. After they find, after they find the word of God in chapter eight of Nehemiah, and they're all excited about it and everybody's like, wow, read the Bible out loud. They read the Bible out loud to each other. Man, Nehemiah became a, a fundamentalist. Nehemiah said, you gotta stop lending people money at this high interest rate. We're gonna stop doing that. All you guys who married those people from other races, get rid of them. I mean, he just went off. He was theologically conservative. He chastised the lenders. He rebuked the men who married outside their race. And on religious principle, he refused to even take a salary for his work as governor. He was indeed a fundamentalist. Nehemiah was a missionary reformer. My question to you today then is, are you a missionary reformer? Do you grieve with compassion for the state of the faith in our nation? Has God, God called you to serve the churches in our region, to teach and to reteach all the things that Jesus Christ has commanded? That is missionary work as well. That is the work I believe I'm called to to serve the people of God, those who have already been called, those who have already been chosen. There's nothing wrong with doing missionary work. There's nothing wrong with going and preaching to the lost. We need to do that. But that's not all of our calling. As Paul the Apostle asked the question, are all of us an eye? No. Are all of us the hand? No. But we all have different giftings. We all have different focuses. And I believe my mission is to the church of Jesus Christ, not just in this church, but to the church around the world. To cast a new vision, to look at the text again, to see what God is saying, to re-envision, to re-inspire, to re-equip the people of God for the work of ministry. Maybe you feel that calling as well. But if you don't, if you feel the call to go overseas and to serve the lost, that's just as good. But don't forget that teaching is a major component of discipleship. Conversion is only half done. You've only fulfilled half of the commission if all you do is get them saved. 
The other half is to train them up and to build them up in the body so they can be sound doctrinally, theologically, and spiritually. I was reminded of Professor Quiggle at Moody Bible Institute. I don't think he's there anymore. But when he came back from Africa, they had done a, some kind of a missionary work over there to talk to the pastors to do some surveys and find out what the pastors wanted to learn about, what theology they need to understand better. And they put this big survey out asking, what questions do you have? Just give us all of your questions. We're going to help you become a better pastor. <laughs> Dr. Quiggle said, they were getting back the strangest questions. Said One pastor sent them a question that said, when, when I go to, a, to, a, to a, a village and somebody has died from AIDS, because a lot of people have AIDS, and somebody has died from AIDS, is it okay if I let the witch doctor do the, the funeral ceremony with me? Those were the kinds of questions they had. And then, really, really, Dr. Quiggle was like thrown completely off, like what in the world are you talking about? They went over there to talk about theology and all this stuff, and these people have practical questions about, seem like that would be ABC, like no, you don't work with the witch doctor. They didn't know it, right? Somebody at some point got them converted. Somebody at some point got them converted to the, to the faith, right? Somebody preached the gospel to them, but they gave them the gospel, they got them converted, and they left them on their own, to their own devices, and they did not fulfill the entire Great Commission, which is also to teach. <laughs> Teaching is a huge part of discipleship. And so if you don't feel called to go overseas and do any work, that's okay. If you feel called just to teach inside of the body of Christ, that is a mission as well. We all have our place. And as we follow God, as we yield to his Holy Spirit and follow his direction for our lives, as we focus on the people that we believe God has called us to with compassion and with earnestness and with fasting and with prayer, God will send us to those people so that we can rebuild, so that we can help them to re-envision. I want to see the church of Jesus Christ in America redefine itself. That's what I want to see. I want to see us re-envision what it means to be children of God, to find our true identity in Christ, to separate from the world, to become more radical for Jesus Christ. These are the days that we're living in, and I'm serious about it. I hope that you are as well. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have called us, that you have sent us, and that you are sending us to the lost and also to the ones who have already been found in you, to the unsaved and to the saved alike. Thank you for giving us mission. Help us to understand our work and our responsibility within the Great Commission. Teach us how to make disciples. Help us to teach and to be an example, both by precept and our own example, of the model of what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ our Lord. Many of us have deep concern about the church, about the body of Jesus Christ around the world. We believe that this concern has come from you. Not a concern that causes us to complain or to judge or to accuse anyone but a concern that your body needs teaching. 
open doors for people in this congregation to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in new, innovative, and refreshing ways so that even those who believe, who have become mired down in fear, depression, and anxiety, so that they might hear the gospel anew and afresh. Bless this place with the gift of teaching. Help us to go out and do the work of discipleship to all men, to all nationalities, to all nations, just as you have desired and designed. And we'll give you all the glory. We'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.